After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Today it is July uh, 2nd. You're probably getting this on July 3rd because July 2nd in the Baseball America world is a pretty busy world, pretty busy day on the international front. So make sure to check out all of Ben Badler's coverage on the international signing day over at baseballamerica.com. He has plenty of content for you if you are into that sort of thing. But I am here with Joe Healy to talk about college baseball. Joe, how are you doing now that we are into the college baseball offseason as it is? It feels a little weird, have to admit. You know, it, it all happens. I'm going to be preaching to the choir a little bit on this one, but it, it's just kind of weird how the season works where it uh, sometimes it feels like the beginning of the season. It probably doesn't sneak up on you and I because we do the, the preview stuff, but I know when I was a fan, it the season sneaks up on you a little bit because it's not too long after the holidays that it starts barreling down on you a little bit. And then you look up and it's over. Um, you know, you got a few weeks, then conference play hits you. And then it looks, you know, then you're in the stretch run right away. And all of a sudden, just like that, you look up and a team's dogpiling. And then that's all she wrote. So it's it's been a little bit weird. It felt like, uh, you know, we got sucked up into a tornado and then spit back out. A, a wonderful, fantastic, fun tornado, but a tornado nonetheless. So it, it takes a little bit of adjustment. I, I don't know about you, but it, it takes me a few days to kind of get back to you know, not being living a a more normal life in terms of, you know, not working everything around college baseball schedules and games and and things of that nature. So that takes some adjustment. And and, but already we're only uh, we're just now a little more than a week removed from the season or actually to the day a week removed from the season. Nope, not quite. My uh, my math is not working well there. Uh, Almost a week to the end of the season. And and already I'm kind of jonesing for games again. So it really doesn't take long, but uh, they go by quicker and quicker with each passing year. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely is an adjustment, and I'm still making it because almost immediately after I got back from Omaha, I went to the beach, and then I did get a little bit of baseball fix yesterday by going to see the collegiate national team, which is is always a fun time as they uh, get ready for their, their summer. I did want to mention here that uh, it is me and Joe today, and just me and Joe, and it will be just me and Joe um, for the foreseeable future now. We will we'll see what hap- what transpires uh, leading into next season. But the point of this is that uh, Dave Serrano, who had been our colleague here on the podcast and at Baseball America during the 2019 season, uh, Dave is back into coaching. The Cal State Northridge Matadors, um, they, uh, they hired Dave to, to be their head coach, and he is off uh, building, building the, the next era of Northridge baseball. So Dave no longer uh, will, will be lending his insights on the podcast, and we will miss him. Uh, but we, we very much wish Dave good luck at Cal State Northridge, uh, and we, uh, we bid him farewell uh, in Omaha, where I guess he went straight to Northridge, I believe, from, from Omaha, where, where he, uh, he did some great work for us. So I know Joe and I both very much appreciated the insights Dave had for us on air and off air and in our top 25 meetings, and, and I hope our, our listeners did as well. Absolutely. I, I really enjoyed working with Dave all year and, and certainly wish him 
nothing but the best at, at Cal State Northridge. And, and I think that's, you know, just to kind of editorialize a little bit on it, I, I think that's going to be, uh, that's a good fit for the program. I think it's a good fit for him. He, he talked a lot in Omaha when, you know, people would come up. <laughs> it was kind of funny because Dave Serrano was kind of something of a celebrity in the press box, not just because he's a, a, a fairly famous college baseball coach, but also because the news had just kind of started to leak out once Omaha got underway. And uh, so he got approached a lot and we were sitting there next to him. And, and, you know, we heard him say over and over again that it's kind of back to his roots and not just in California, but in terms of the type of program, it's not altogether different than you know, Irvine when he took over there. So, uh, you know, I think it's a really good match. I'm excited to see what they do. And obviously, you know, it's part of our jobs to stay impartial here, but obviously we have an affinity for Dave. I think we both consider Dave a friend now. So, you know, wish him well and wish him the program well. And I think that's, um, I think it's going to be a, a good match from a coaching and program standpoint. It definitely will be fun to see the big West showdowns between CSUN, Fullerton and Irvine uh, in, in the years to come where, you know, Dave has, uh, you know, connections with all of them and, I, I think that those programs are all going to be, you know, certainly in the top half, at least of the the Big West, uh, for for a bit of the foreseeable future. So we'll get into a little more coaching carousel stuff later. First, we have this small matter of Vanderbilt winning the national championship, as Joe said just about a week ago. Now, uh, Vanderbilt defeated Michigan in the College World Series finals. Michigan won game one. Vanderbilt, of course, comes back to win the next two games. I'm not we're not we're not breaking any new ground there. Um, Kumar Rocker won the World Series Most Outstanding Player after two really good starts, including a game two start with uh, with Vanderbilt's backs against the wall. Uh, not all that dissimilar, really, from the no hitter he threw in Super Regionals. It wasn't quite that electric on, on that night against Michigan, but he was pretty darn close. And Vanderbilt finishes off uh, a season in which they started the year as the preseason number one team in as number one in the final Baseball America Top 25. They're the first team to do that since LSU did it back in the 90s. You can see the full Top 25 led by Vanderbilt and Michigan over at BaseballAmerica.com. So if you haven't seen that yet, I, I would encourage you to check it out. This Vanderbilt team ultimately ends up as a pretty historic team. They set the SEC record for wins with 59. That's also the most wins by a national champion since Wichita State in 1989. And back in those days, teams weren't, they had, they were allowed to play more regular season games. That was before the 56 game regular season was mandated by the NCAA. Like I said, for first time in nearly 20, or in more than 20 years rather, that a team uh, was number one in the preseason and in the final rankings. And they are the first team in a decade since LSU did this in 2009 to win the SEC's regular season and tournament titles and then go on to win the national championship. So when you start stacking this team up, uh, you know, just the accomplishments that Vanderbilt had this year, they they look pretty favorable when, it, when you start looking at, at greatest teams of all time or at least greatest teams of, uh, of the last 25, 30 years. Um, Joe, just when, when you look at this Vanderbilt team, just kind of what what stands out to them, to you about them, and 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 what they were able to accomplish uh, ultimately when, when you look at the totality of their season. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, and and it has to put them right up there with with some of the all time great national champs. And and I'm not very good to be honest about where they rank and trying to rank the greatness of national champions because I think as is the case 
with all sports in college baseball, it's just an apples to oranges thing. You mentioned a, a previous era of college baseball having more games played, so you can't always trust the the raw win totals, for example. And then you have to factor in well, they use different bats and different balls, and there were yada yada yada, go so on and so forth. But with that being said, I mean, I think this Vandy team has to be pretty high on any list you create. And there's a lot of things that check that box. You mentioned some of them, the 59 wins, the, you know, the double dipping SEC titles plus the national title. But then some of the other things that stand out to me are the fact that, you know, that I think that gives this team that kind of cachet is they had the superstar power. Obviously, J.J. Bladé was a name there. Austin Martin uh, really emerged. And, you know, he's going to be a big name going into the 2020 draft. You also had kind of that emerging star component. I think it would have been one thing if this Vanderbilt team had kind of just been what they were all season long. But then you had this ascendant star in Kumar Rocker who got better as the season went on. He was a big name coming into the year, obviously, as, an, as, a, um, as a drafted player who, who did not sign, went to school. He he had his struggles early, got a little bit better. By the end of the season, was really had it rolling and looked like he was going to be a big part of their postseason run. And then, and boy, was he! Um, you know, I think he goes into 2020 being perhaps the most famous name in college baseball? Question mark. Um, and yes you know, the, to that. Yeah, I think that's probably safe. And I think a, a great a great way to kind of judge that is, you know, when I talk to folks who know that I cover college baseball just in casual conversation, the questions I get most often are asking about their specific alma mater. Um, And that's still the most common thing. But far and away this year, the second most common thing I heard was specifically after the Super Regional, and it were just questions in general about Kumar Rocker. So that was something that no hitter, uh, whether it was the postseason or just because of the, the, the moment, or maybe it was that that game was kind of finishing up later at night when a lot of things other people might've been watching had finished up. I, you know, I don't know, but for one reason or another, that really kind of connected with casual sports fans in a way that most college baseball things don't. Um, so I think that makes him, um, you know, just this huge star going into 2020. And then I think another thing for this team is that it, that no hitter gave this team a signature moment. I think it's something that even beyond winning the national title, I think that's something that college baseball fans are going to remember moving forward. And this has a chance to be the first team in a run of teams now that, that have a chance to get back to Omaha and win national titles. I think, you know, Vanderbilt's got to be on your early list. I believe they were in your eight for Omaha you put out earlier this week. Um, I think you have to start with Vanderbilt when you talk about 2020 national title contenders. Understanding, of course, a lot of things can change, uh, most notably thanks to the the signing deadline here uh, this summer. And, you know, finding out which big name players sign or don't sign. Uh, Vanderbilt certainly looks like a safe bet to be back in Omaha next year, as safe as anybody else. And, uh, for a lot of the reasons that, that we just talked about. And I think sometimes when a team is able to go on those two, three, four year runs, you remember kind of that first team pretty fondly. And it kind of maybe adds a little bit of mystique to that first team in that run. And that's perhaps what, what this 2019 team will have going for it. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, when you, when you look at, at what Vanderbilt accomplished, um, Obviously, the, the the big numbers that I mentioned there, the what they what they've done that either hasn't been done before or hasn't been done in a long time, like that that all stands out. But I I think that the talent on this team also is significant. When you when you look at at Rocker, uh, he's the early favorite to be the first pick in the 2021 draft. And I know that's forever away, and he's a pitcher, and you know we hope he stays healthy. But it's uh, there's there's a long time in the next two years to go on that one. Uh, but Austin Martin looks like a potential top five, top ten. Uh, I've seen some people talking about him even higher than that, potentially. And then Bladé, of course, this year was the number four overall pick. So you have three 
guys that you know look very much like top 10 picks three years in a row and I'll have to do research on that I, I don't know when the last time that happened was and it's uh it's an impressive array of talent it was an impressive senior class that that returned to Vanderbilt this year uh, that's a team that isn't used to having seniors and they had guys like Ethan Paul and Stephen Scott and Patrick Raby uh, that, that were an important part of all of this and you know then you look at, at, at the juniors with with you know Blade leading the way and, and then the sophomore class with Martin and, and the freshman class with Rocker and it's just this very well spread out array of talent and they have another really good recruiting class coming in this year led by Jack Leiter, the son of uh, Al Leiter, who you might remember uh, as an all-star pitcher for the Mets and the Yankees. And there's no reason to think that this is stopping. Like you said that, yes, they were in my eight for Omaha next year. The last time Vanderbilt won a national title 2014, they were the number one uh, team in the preseason rankings the next year. And that may very well happen again this year. Uh, Don't hold me to that if we decide next January to go a different direction. But uh, right now, Vanderbilt certainly, like you said, has to be considered right at the top of, uh, of your, your 2020 national championship contender. Side note, it is really weird to say 2020 already. Uh, but that's where we are. Um, so yeah, when you look at this Vanderbilt team, a very, very impressive accomplishment, of course, to win the second national championship in program history and the second in, uh, in, in six years there for the Commodores. But Michigan, also very impressive and, and deserving of, uh, of some love for what they were able to do to, to be the national runner-up. They were, of course, one of the last four teams that the selection committee put into the tournament. Uh, they went out to the Corvallis Regional, won that, then went on the road to UCLA, upset the Bruins, were the first team to to beat the to beat UCLA in a weekend series all season, and then they uh, they just stormed through Omaha. They won their first four games there before they uh, they couldn't get over the hump against Vanderbilt in the final two. And uh, they're the first Big Ten team to play for the title since Ohio State in the '60s when when they uh, were were in Omaha and, and winning their national titles. Um, Michigan itself hadn't been in Omaha since the '80s uh, when they had that run. For, for the Wolverines, and it was a level that the Big Ten hasn't really seen. You know, Indiana got to Omaha uh, six years ago now, seven years ago, and, and the Hoosiers, you know, were the first team to, to break through uh, for the Big Ten in, in more than two decades, and Michigan then takes it the next step by, by going out and, and playing as well in Omaha as they did, and I, I was very impressed by what I saw from the Wolverines, you know, obviously Tommy Henry and Carl Kaufman were, were outstanding for them, and Jeff Criswell shutting it down, moving uh, from the rotation back to a, a relief role that he held a year ago, and uh, he was great as a as a bullpen ace. And they they had a lot of exciting offensive players, uh, whether we're talking about Jesse Franklin or Jack Blomgren or Jimmy Kerr and his his amazing story with his father and grandfather also playing for Michigan and Omaha and. Of course, Jordan Brewer, the the Big Ten Player of the Year. Uh, so I, I thought that was a, that was an exceptional Mich- Michigan team, uh, an absolutely outstanding job by Eric Bakich and his staff to put that team together, and then for the team to uh, to get hot down the stretch. And Joe, it's something we talked about a lot on the podcast, and, and got talked about a lot in Omaha is just that they were able to find themselves 
uh, really in the Big Ten tournament when they were staring elimination in the face uh, against Illinois. Yeah, I mean, they it, it, it may have sounded when, because I heard Eric Backage say it several times throughout the week, and it might have sound, sounded a little bit like an over-exaggeration, but they really were. If they lose that game to Illinois, they're probably not getting in. Um, actually, I, I could say with almost certainty they're not getting in. So, um, yeah, they were just that close, um, that close to not even getting this opportunity and I think for one it just shows you that how thin the margins are and that you know we probably and that's the, the royal we we probably underestimate each year just how many teams have it in them to make this type of run now you know Michigan was a preseason ranked team in the preseason they were ranked at a couple of different points within the season so it wasn't completely out of left field it kind of reminded me a little bit of Fresno State in 2008 where all all this hoopla was made about them being a Cinderella and they were they were a four seed in regional but you know they were a ranked preseason team so it was and had a ton of talent so you know it kind of reminded me a little bit of that but I think it was kind of a culmination of of things that I think we've seen coming with Michigan for a while I mean they've been collect. I mean the talent was very very real this was not a smoke and mirrors thing I mean sometimes you can get to Omaha and, and it be fluke is a strong word and that's kind of feels disrespectful to the teams that get there but you can kind of smoke and mirrors your way there sometimes if things just really go your way. This was this was not that, especially when they went, go to UCLA and win that super regional. I mean, that's just incredible. But it, it, but it's not just that. It's also that, you know, there's the higher level of commitment across that league. And, um, you know, Eric Backage has long believed in the ability of his program to do this. I remember covering Michigan in Big Ten tournaments uh, as far back as a couple of years ago. Uh, 2017, when when he was saying things like, you know, we understand how powerful the Block M is as a as a as a symbol and as a brand, and there's no reason why we can't go recruit nationally or get high high end talent here or uh, what have you. And and to see you you now see that that he wasn't wrong about that. You can do that there. Um, there are always going to be things that work against them. They are always going to have to play their first six seven weeks on the road. That's not going to change. Um, unless climate change really takes hold in some way, um, and we end up with <laughs> with uh, you know warmer weather in Ann Arbor, but that's not likely to happen anytime soon. So you you know that's just going to be a limitation they have. But the raw materials are certainly there. I think this is they they have a chance to not be a one hit wonder. I mean they could be back next year for that matter. Um, but I think it's a really solid foundation laid, and, and obviously a variable there is you know if, if Eric Backage becomes a candidate at some higher profile jobs across the country. That's obviously a wild card there. And how much would the, his uh, successor be able to kind of keep it rolling? But I don't really see with, with the quality of the Big Ten, with what Michigan has going. Um, you know, I like to use the term raw materials just as everything to kind of have going for them and, and the foundation there. I don't necessarily see any reason why this is going to just be a flash in the pan and a one-year success story. Will they get back to Omaha next year or even the next five years? Who knows? But that's true of every program we talk about. So um, I think it's really good for Michigan. I think it's really good for the Big Ten. I think it really hammers home that um, to the point that uh, Backage and the rest of his team made uh, during their stint, their time in Omaha is that you don't have to go to the southeast or the west coast to win on a on a big scale. And, and this was just kind of that that proof. Yeah, the. I, I so I have them back in Omaha next year in that aid for Homa, Omaha which again went went online uh, at Baseball America earlier this week. And I don't know, even to me, that feels a little aggressive, but you know, considering they're losing Henry and Kaufman and Brewer, the big class in this was the sophomore class. That's the class that was the number 10 ranked recruiting class, the highest ranked recruiting class in Big Ten history. Um, and they've delivered on it for 
you know, for so many of the, the, the key players on this team, they were sophomores. Um, the, yes, there were, there were juniors and seniors doing it, but Joe Donovan behind the plate, Jack Blomgren at shortstop, Jesse Franklin in center field, they're all back next year. And Jeff Criswell is back. And Ben Dragani, who wasn't a part of this run because he was out with, uh, with Tommy John surgery this year, he'll be back and he'll be a, a redshirt sophomore. And so that group is a really strong core to build around. And I think that they're a really talented um, you know, freshman on, on this year's team. And I know that they have some good players coming in next year as well. And, and so I, I feel like that you know, they, they can be set up to, to return to Omaha. Uh, it won't be easy. It, they're a really difficult team to kind of evaluate here because, again, they had such a weird regular season wherein that they played really well a lot of the time and then just against the best, you know, when they had a chance to really break through during the regular season, they were never able to do that. So that was, you know, they beat UCLA on a Friday night in the Dodger Stadium Classic and then lose the next two games of the weekend. And they, you know, get hot again, go down to Texas Tech with some momentum and get swept. And then, you know, with a chance to go out and, and win the Big Ten, they lose back-to-back series against Indiana and Nebraska. But I think that some of that can just be resolved now because the players that do return are going to know what they did to you know, shut out whatever noise or, or play loose, whatever it was uh, that allowed them to go on this run. They're going to understand how to do that now. And, and I think that in some of those moments during the regular season next year, they'll be able to you know, find some of that uh, that attitude that they played with during the postseason and apply it in, in scenarios that allow them to to have those breakthrough weekends during the regular season that maybe sets them up to to be a host to win the Big Ten and, and uh, you know not have to sneak into the tournament and, and, and have this magical run again uh, because that that's not realistic. Um, but if they if they can host. Uh, a lot of things, a lot more things are, are open to them. And, and I feel like this is a team that's definitely going to go in as the Big Ten favorite and rightfully so and, and you know, have a, a real shot at, at hosting. And they are going to ha- be playing on a tar- with a target on their back in a way that they are, have not before. And, and so that is one thing they're going to have to adjust to. But I think after what they did this year, they're, they're going to uh, they're going to be ready for that. And if they're not, they just need to find a Kenny Chesney concert. Um, that's right. You know, what, what, what did you think about the Kenny Chesney story in which they, uh, so they had a day off in Lincoln uh, after between the Big Ten tournament and, or between the, their series ending series at Nebraska, Big Ten tournament. Michigan did not go home to Ann Arbor. They just stayed in Nebraska. The players found a Kenny Chesney concert to go to. Um, some of them bought cowboy hats. Maybe all of them bought cowboy hats. I don't know. Carl Kaufman became rather attached to his cowboy hat. And the players really point to that Kenny Chesney concert because then when they were coming back against Illinois, a Kenny Chesney song came on over the PA system and, and they really found belief there. What, what, what do you got on all of that, Joe? Nothing short of divine intervention. It has to be. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think it, I think it just shows the power. I mean, cause that could have been any concert, right? I mean, I think it just kind of shows the power of when coaches talk about it being a family. And I think people roll their eyes at that the idea of, of, of these teams as families. But I think that type of story just shows kind of the, how much power that can have. It's not a, it's not a panacea. You can't, you know, really 
tight, close-knit group of guys also needs to be talented and have good luck and not get injured and all of those things. But I think it does kind of show the power of something as silly as a Kenny Chesney concert and happening happening to hear a song over the PA at an opportune time can really kind of galvanize a team. Um, and if, if, if that hadn't happened, who knows how the season goes? Uh, it might've turned out the same. You might argue it very likely might have turned, might very likely turned out the same, but, um, but I think it really does kind of hammer home what coaches try to hammer home. And that's the importance of, of having a team that's really close and that trusts each other and that it like enjoys being around each other. Cause let's face it. I mean, they're around each other a lot. Um, so that, that, that kind of thing is, is, uh, is important. Um, I kind of have a follow up for you. I'm curious what you think the upshot from a league standpoint or maybe just a regional standpoint in the the mid upper Midwest or the the north and more generally what you think the upshot of of Michigan doing so well at at this level does, because I, you know, I I just wonder if, if other big 10 programs or what have you kind of look around and go, well, wait a minute, why, what's holding us back from being able to do something like that. And I, I know it's not as easy as just kind of, throwing money at the thing, although that helps clearly, or if you think this maybe is, is kind of just, um, you know, maybe a sign of, of continuing growth for the big 10, but maybe not something that's going to be a catalyst for, for growth beyond this point. Yeah. So that's difficult. And I'm doing my best to, to try and answer that. Um, I'm trying to, trying to report a story to, to try and answer that question. And I I'm still working on that. So I, I don't know that I have all answers yet. But I, I think we can say that this has to help Michigan uh, in recruiting, you know, fan base building. There were a lot of Michigan fans at a TD, TD Ameritrade Park. Uh, you would have to think that, you know, next season they'll have more fans in Ann Arbor for their home games. Obviously, on the recruiting trail, they, they you know, just got, at, you know, outstanding you know, attention paid to them. Uh, you know, plenty of kids were, were watching the the World Series finals or at least are aware of who played in the World Series finals and, um, you know, are probably looking at Michigan a little bit differently than they did a month ago. So I think from a Michigan standpoint, the benefits are are pretty clear. And then I think when you look beyond that, um, Eric Backich was already the highest paid coach in the Big Ten. I, I have no inside knowledge of this, but uh, I would not be surprised if Eric Backich got a contract extension and a raise out of this. So he was already the highest paid coach. Let's say that he gets a bit of a raise. And, you know, so everyone now is going to be trying to, you know, catch up to that. And everyone, you know, all the coaches around the league can be pointing to his salary and saying, well, hey, like if we want to be like Michigan, we have to get competitive on this. We have to get competitive on assistant coach salaries. We have to get competitive on recruiting budget, whatever it is everyone can now point to Michigan and say, hey, we need to do this. So I think that that's beneficial. Just ba- even, if it, even if all that is, is Nebraska, which has a new coach and Will Bolt, looking at how, how they take the next step. That's a program that's been a fairly consistent regional team under Darren Erstad. Now they want to figure out how to get back to super regionals, how to get back to Omaha like they were at the turn of the century. Well, they're going to have to catch up to Michigan to do that. And, and Indiana, how do they get back to Omaha? Um, you know, Jeff Mercer's been there a year. It was a good year. They won the Big Ten regular season. Now how do we take the next step? Well, what do we have to do to, to at least keep up with Michigan? And, of course, Michigan's biggest rival, Ohio State, is probably looking at it in, in much the same way. They won the Big Ten tournament. Greg Beals just got an extension. 
now how do you take the next step? What, what do you have to do to, to get to where Michigan is today? And so even if it's just those teams in the top half of the Big Ten that do it, um, I think that's significant. But I think that teams in the, in the lower half of the Big Ten, teams that are, are just trying to, you know, get to, get to where Minnesota, Nebraska, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio State, uh, Maryland, wh- where those teams are, I think they now realize that, hey, the top end of this conference is moving and we have to do something to, to keep up with them. And, you know, so I, I, maybe that means facilities, maybe that means, you know, recruiting budget, assistant coach salary, whatever. Uh, I, I think that, that that all has to help. And then, but I think the, the biggest potential thing to come from this would be if the league office realized that, hey, our schools are competitive now. Our schools can go compete at the highest level now. What do we have to do to support them? And whether that means engaging the Big Ten network in a way that it hasn't really been on baseball before, you know, they show it, um, but there's no dedicated night the way that Thursday night in the SEC is. And, and I'm not saying that that needs to be the case in the Big Ten, that they need to start having Thursday to Saturday series like the SEC does, whether that's, you know, some sort of bigger spotlight, because the Big Ten network is a big media arm that, that has a big spotlight it can shine. And right now it mostly shines it on football and basketball and then treats the rest of the sports pretty similarly. And, you know, that's their strategy and, and it is what it is. But maybe now that they, they want to move towards something else because two million people wa- every night of the finals were watching Michigan play baseball. You know, so that's that's a significant thing. And, and you know, I I would love to see the Big Ten Network get more involved. I would love to see the league office find ways to to get some of these things that we've complained about with the Big Ten on the podcast before that I've ran about how to fix some of these things, how to, you know, maybe expand the Big Ten tournament, fix some of the scheduling issues that have so long plagued that conference. And so on an individual school basis, it, it I don't think it's far-fetched to say that an athletic director looks at what Michigan did and says, oh, okay, well, now we need to catch up to that. I, I What I want to see is the Big Ten has a new commissioner coming in in September. I want to see that he now makes baseball more of a priority than Jim Delaney did. Um, it's a pipe dream to think that Wisconsin would add baseball over this, but that would also be outstanding. Uh, that is kind of the way things played out in Oregon uh, when Oregon State won their national titles. Not too long later, Oregon uh, restarted their their baseball program. I, I don't know that we're going to see that. Barry Alvarez, the Wisconsin AD, has been pretty resistant to that, and as long as uh, he holds that job, that, that probably just won't happen. But you never know. So I, I think that's kind of where I see this going for the Big Ten. Uh, I, I think on on the most basic, immediate level, you will see at least some of the schools making plans to try and get their programs to where Michigan has has gotten theirs to. Do, do you see any anything else coming of this, Joe? Uh, you know, as someone that's that's been up in in the Big Ten neck of the woods for the last few years. Yeah, I think I think. I think you're right on, on, on all that. And that sounds, that sounds about right. I think it's going to be, some things are going to be more immediate changes. Uh, you know, obviously that like, for example, Backage getting an extension and raise, that all seems like that makes a, a ton of sense. Obviously, I think you'll also see a little more slowly, but, but pretty quickly, I think you'll see maybe some other teams step up and try, try to 
um, to play at that level as well. But I'm with you. And then one of the things I would love to see is just from a BTN standpoint, um, you know, having more, not just having more games period. Oh, that would also be nice, but you know, let's have a little bit of a studio presence. Um, you know, let's do, you know, live, you know, live studios from games. Let's, you know, yeah, have a little Dave Winfield doing these days, you know, that's right. Like, let's get Dave. Yeah, that's right. Let's get Dave Winfield out there. Let's, let's, I, let's... But like in, in, in a more serious way, like the SEC, you know, was, they had a set at the finals with Chris Burke and Ben McDonald right. sitting on it with Dari Noka every night. Big 10 network wasn't there in that, that capacity. There are guys you can put on a set from big 10 schools that, that can do a similar thing. At least that something like that needs to happen if one of your schools is playing in the finals. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, yeah, so it, it's stuff like that that I think is the longer term stuff that I think might um, might end up coming out of this. That's really for the greater good of the conference. As we look at the rest of the World Series, Joe, was there? Uh, you know, we we saw Mike Martin, uh, his career come to an end uh, as Florida State's uh, own magical run to Omaha came to an end. Uh, Mike Martin was named our uh, the Baseball America Coach of the Year for the the second time, just the second time, kind of remarkably in his career uh, this year as, as he as he exits the game uh, as the the winningest coach in history and after another Omaha run, his seventeenth with the Seminoles. Um, that was a that was a an emotional moment. It was uh, kind of a surreal moment as you know Texas Tech won that game. Uh, but then, you know, so much of the focus was on Mike Martin and, and it being his final game. Deservedly so. I mean, he uh, he's an absolute legend. And then just a night later, Mississippi State gets eliminated. And that brings to a close Jake Mangum's career. And, uh, of course, a player doesn't have, you know, the same kind of, you know, he wasn't there for 40 years the way 11 was. Uh, but Jake Mangum, the all-time SEC hits leader, number four on the NCAA list, just a remarkable career that he had. It came to an end, and he gave a very emotional press conference, and then at the end of the press conference, uh, collected himself enough uh, to use the 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 bully pulpit of of the of Omaha to to make a case for the third assistant coach and more scholarships in the sport, which was absolutely remarkable after after everything he had been through that night to to be able to to collect himself and, and make a case for for why the volunteer assistant role should be eliminated in favor of a, a paid assistant uh and, and why there should be more scholarships in, in baseball and, and to make it as as well as he made it i, I thought was was amazingly impressive and I, I so for me those two moments will be two of the things that sticks stick with me um from this this year in omaha joe what uh what did you what do you think will will be sticking with you uh from the college world series this year beyond the finals so all of the above um you know i was really impressed with with mike martin um and how he how he handled that moment and obviously it's something he'd had time to think about um maybe not the omaha part of it specifically because you don't know until you win a super regional that your season is going to end one way or the other in omaha but um, you know, the, the way he handled it, it almost seemed like it, at points that he was working hard to try to help others feel better about the situation. You know, <laughs> people kept kind of asking him about legacy and um, memories and looking for advice for, for future coaches. And, yeah, you know, all that's all those good questions that you ask after a, a, a career like his ends. And 
it seemed like he was working really hard to kind of be like, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Like everything is fine. I'm looking forward to retirement. I'm had a blast here. You know, almost like he was trying to console us about losing a legend like that in the game. And that really, that really struck me as being quintessential Mike Martin. Um, so that stands out. Obviously you mentioned Mississippi state. I was, you know, really kind of surprised to see their season end as early as it did. And that that's just the way Omaha works, you know, a couple, couple bounces here, or there, a couple of games don't go your way and, and you're headed home. Um, a couple other quick things is, well, one of which was, you know, kudos to, to Texas Tech and Louisville, you know, two teams that for all the times they've been to Omaha recently had not had a ton of success. Both had better, more success this time around they'd had um, in previous trips. That's a big deal for those programs that it's kind of overlooked in the grand scheme. Um, I was also struck by how many of these teams and and this some of this is probably recency bias because the last thing we saw were these teams playing in the College World Series. But and and maybe this is the case every year. But I was struck by how many of these teams look like obvious contenders to be back next year. And I think that was reflected in your eight for Omaha. But, you know, obviously we, we talked about Vanderbilt. We talked about Michigan, you know, Texas Tech and Louisville or history suggests they're going to be right back in that mix. And Louisville in particular is going to have an outstanding starting rotation next year that should put them in that mix. And, and Auburn's another team to watch in that regard um, with, with all the talent they have. And, and they got some good news vis-a-vis the draft with guys like, like Jack Owen and Edward Julian coming back. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's not outlandish to say that half of this field returns next year. I mean, obviously a, a lot of time between now and then, believe it or not, but um, that's, I don't know if that's, the usual, you know, situation, I just guess I haven't paid that much attention to it from that standpoint. But while I was there, it kind of struck me at how many of these teams look like they could be back in 2020. Yeah, I think that it was a little unusual that, that we're seeing so much uh, of that. And I think some of it also is because that there were so few surprises uh, in Omaha this year to a certain extent. I mean, you know, Florida State and Michigan, yes, were in the final four in, in the in the tournament, and yes, Auburn finished under 500 in the SEC. But all three of those were top 20 teams coming into the year, and you know, so Auburn got their year ahead of schedule. Those kids are, for the most part, going to be juniors next year when you're looking at their stars. So that's kind of how that happened, and, and Michigan to a certain extent as well. Like I mentioned, that was the their their best class was their sophomore class. Uh, on paper, at least, and it, it, they're, it, it's a really strong core for for them and and for for a lot of these teams. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to do an analysis of previous eight for Omaha's if if we were looking at half the field or more returning. And I do feel like that's kind of just where college baseball is right now. Um, it's where kind of college sports are in general. That uh, a lot of the talent is concentrating in um, fewer and fewer places, and so then that leads to you know, the same teams making the college football playoff year in and year out. And a lot of the teams as hosts are the same year in and year out. And if you're a host, you're more likely to get to Omaha. And so I do just kind of think that's a general college sports trend, uh, which we've kind of touched on previously. And, you know, we can get into deeper later if uh, that's actually a good thing for college baseball or not just a few years after Coastal Carolina won a national title that was supposed to be the breakthrough for mid-majors everywhere, uh, mid-majors are, are suffering. Um, not they're, they're not getting into the tournament. They're not getting into Super Regionals at a, a rate higher than ever before. You know, so so much for that, that breakthrough for, for Coastal being the beginning of, of showing everyone they can compete for baseball. 
it, it has not turned out that way at all. As we, uh, as we move up past this year's College World Series, there have been some pretty notable coaching changes. I think we're up to 30-ish. We're, we're, if we're not at 30 coaching changes from this summer, we're, we're getting very close to it. And uh, among them, we had Oregon State making a, a, a new hire, and that was rather surprising. Um, you know, right at the beginning of the College World Series, Mitch Canham hired by Oregon State. Uh, he is a former Oregon State player, was a part of the national championship teams. The first two that, that the Beavers had had been managing in the minor leagues for the last few years, and he will be the permanent replacement for Pat Casey, who, of course, retired last September, just a few months after winning the national championship. That is not the direction most people thought this was going. Uh, it was expected that Pat Bailey, who had been the interim head coach and the associate head coach under under Casey, or pitching coach Nate Yeske, who's a young, rising superstar in the, the industry, uh, would get the job. But instead, Oregon State Athletic Director Scott Barnes uh, goes and tra- taps Canham, who some people on the pro side thought was on a big league track, uh, potentially as a big league manager, certainly uh, as a big league coach. He's only 34. He's the third youngest coach, uh, head coach for, for a Power 5 school. Uh, Joe, just kind of what, what are your thoughts on, on Oregon State? It's still a little unsettled. We don't know what Canham's coaching staff will look like yet completely. Um, but what, what do you think about Oregon State going off the board to, to tap Mitch Canham as, as Pat Casey's ultimate successor? Yeah, it was a little bit of a strange one. Um, not that Mitch Canham is not a perfectly uh, defensible and, and, and good choice. I mean, if, if all things were equal, if they were starting from scratch, I think a lot of people would be lauding that choice just because he, he played in the program. Um, people speak highly of him. He obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of history there with him. So in that regard, it, it makes some sense. But it, that this has just been such a Oregon State situation has been so strange from the very beginning. It's just a unique setup with, you know, Pat Casey stepping away for a little bit. And he, you know, he, has the opportunity to return after the 2019 season. And I think, um, and I have no real inside information on it, but I just kind of always assumed that was going to happen. You know, it felt like, you know, if, if, if you put the clause in there, it seems like it, it would stand to reason that you were probably looking for an opportunity to exercise that clause and get back into it. Um, that obviously doesn't happen. And then it's just kind of unique that you, you've got a couple obvious choices. I mean, it, the guy who led the team in, in 2019 and, um, you know, outside of that quick, postseason exit things went went pretty well in 2019 I think we kind of thought that Oregon State had had overachieved a little bit for most of the season they until they hit the skids a little late and then you had Nate Yeski who you mentioned is one of the rising stars in the profession and I think that's that's true as well and and so it, it was just a kind of surprising that they would take that and go outside of that structure and it, it creates an interesting situation with the coaching staff moving forward um, you know because those guys were already in place and then what does he do from there is going to be kind of an interesting uh, situation to watch unfold. And, you know, the thing about it is, is how much, you know, it might be a tough thing to kind of give Mitch Canham a chance here just because it's such a unique situation. There were obviously, I'm sure. And again, no inside information. I just, I'm sure there were kind of factions. There were people who wanted Pat Bailey to continue on. And there were people who probably were Nate Yeski guys. And, you know, he's kind of a rising star and a younger guy. And I think there are probably people who are a little bit itching to keep him, in Corvallis long-term. And then there, uh, there's a lot of support for Mitch Canham as well. So it's, it's one of those deals where you just kind of, 
for the program's sake, you hope that everyone is able to kind of rally around the guy and, and move forward with him. Otherwise, you know, if things hit the skids earlier, things don't go in 2020 as well as, as they would have hoped it, 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 it could create, you could, you could foresee it creating kind of an awkward situation given how unique this was. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a summer of change out West, not just at Oregon state, Oregon has a new coach. USC has a new coach. There's some new coaches in the big West. We mentioned Dave Serrano is one of them. Long beach state hired Eric Valenzuela, uh, as their new head coach after firing Troy Buckley back in April. Uh, so a lot of changes out West. Not so many changes in, in the ACC or the SEC. Uh, I guess the one big one there is that Mike Martin Jr. was ultimately promoted uh, to, to replace his father, uh, to succeed his father. And that was the subject. Uh, who would replace Mike Martin was the subject of a lot of... Uh, I, I've often referred to it as college baseball's favorite parlor game for the last few years. And um, a lot of people like talking about that. Now it's done. They stayed in the family, literally, and it will be Mike Martin Jr. leading the Seminoles forward. I think he is absolutely ready for that. Uh, he worked on his father's staff for more than 20 years. He's been their recruiting coordinator. They've recruited at a pretty high level, uh, really the best in the ACC for the last four or five years. Uh, so I, I think that you know he, he absolutely deserved the chance to – get that appointment and to be head coach. And it will be very interesting to see where he takes it. It's not an easy job because of what the expectations are. He basically, the way I see it, it's, it's kind of a threefold thing. One, you have to uh, continue Florida's 40-plus year streaks of making the NCAA tournament and winning at least 40 games. Two, you have to find a way to – I think they're ahead of Miami right now as a program – uh, so you, you have to find a way to to stay ahead of Miami, uh, or at least not fall behind Miami. And they are definitely behind Florida, though. Um, they've lost they've lost the season series to Florida for many years running now, and they have to find a way to close the gap on Florida. And then three, he has to go win the national title that eluded his father and has eluded the program for its seventy plus years of existence. So that's his you know what what, what he's tasked with. And that's not an easy task. So, yes, it, he, he gets to be the head coach at Florida State, uh, a program he knows intimately well and uh, is set up very well to succeed being in the state of Florida and, and, and being the brand that it is. But it's, uh, it's a tall task for anyone that was going into that. I thought one of the other interesting jobs to open uh, was Nebraska, where Darren Erstad, former All-Star, former All-American at Nebraska, he steps down, and Will Bolt, who played at Nebraska, uh, is hired away from Texas A&M. Joe, just what, what did you think of, uh, of those changes at Nebraska and, and what Darren Erstad was able to do at his alma mater? We see a lot of the times uh, these guys, uh, these, these famous alumni coming in. We, we saw it at Wichita State this year where Eric Wedge is returning to his alma mater without college coaching experience. Darren Erstad had one year uh, as the volunteer assistant before he took over as head coach. And uh, what, what do you make of his tenure and, and what do you think about uh, what Will Bolt can do with the Huskers? Yeah, I think he did a really nice job, all things considered. And I know that, you know, Nebraska is a, a very passionate fan base and I think there's always pressure to kind of replicate what Dave Van Horn did in Lincoln and getting that team to, to Omaha on a couple of occasions and really making them 
you know, for, for a short period of time, they were about as good as any other program in the Big 12. They were in the Big 12 at the time. And I think that's just kind of an unrealistic expectation, um, you know, that they're going to be able to replicate that. Do they have the ceiling for that? Absolutely. Um, they have a lot of ways. I get asked a lot to kind of compare Big Ten baseball to other conferences and what have you. And, and, and I always use Nebraska as the closest thing to an SEC program that the Big Ten has in terms of the facility, in terms of the fan support, um, things of that nature, in terms of, you know, that they have the history as well. I mean, they have high-end history that no one, perhaps except Michigan, especially now, can really match. So the, the, I think there is the opportunity to have success like that. I just think too many viewed uh, Erstad's tenure kind of through the lens of what Van Horn accomplished there. And I think they can kind of lose sight of how much better this program is now uh, than when Erstad took over. So um, really a fantastic run for him. I mean, the, the success was pretty consistent. I mean, they had a really tough 2018 season where they, they got bitten by injuries, quite frankly, was really the biggest thing. Uh, but bounced right back in 2019 and were, were quite good. And, you know, I always kind of enjoyed Darren Erstad. I mean, one of the things I, and I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of the things I really enjoyed about covering games with his team is, is he really seemed to have good perspective. Um, you know, he was, he was a guy who, I don't know if it was because he'd been in the big leagues. So he, you know, had the experience of playing baseball at a higher level and a higher level of pressure. And, you know, he was big on always kind of coming at losses from the standpoint of, you know, like, you know, this is it's college baseball, you know, mistakes get made and you just have to be the team that capitalizes on mistakes more often than the opponent. And, you know, the, these kids are resilient and we're going to come back out and play tomorrow. And I think sometimes people thought maybe that uh, viewed that as him being aloof um, or maybe being short with people. But I really just think that's the way he approached the game and approached coaching. And nobody was more competitive. Nobody wanted to win more than he did. But I think he just had good perspective. And he often talked about wanting to make uh, give his players a good student athlete experience. And I, I, I believe that was a big part of the reason he took the job and the reason he stayed in the job. And um, was really wanting to give these guys a good experience of playing baseball in Nebraska. And his players clearly have an affinity for him. His players clearly enjoyed playing for him. Um, and I think that's why I think they, they, they felt that he was there for them and wanted to give them the best experience and, and, you know, win some games, obviously on top of that. And, and Will Bolt was an obvious name. I think he's somebody who, um, you know, when you talked about, you know, winner stad steps aside, uh, who would be the, the, the guy to turn to. And I think Will Bolt was the first name people thought of, and it turned out that was their guy all along. So kind of a tidy little search for Nebraska, and a, a guy with experience at Nebraska, but also high-end experience in the SEC at a and I think it's a good match uh, in terms of program and coach there for sure. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see where where he is able to take it because, yes, Darren Erstead definitely is leaving the program in a much better place than he found it. And uh, I'll be uh, I'll be interested to see where that goes. And, and like we were talking about earlier, just Nebraska is one of those schools that that is at the top of the Big Ten that now has to find a way to – uh, at least keep Michigan in its sights along with Minnesota, which uh, made it to a super regional and, of course, had that fantastic season a year ago and has been really one of the most consistent teams in the Big Ten for the last four or five years. So uh, I, I will be interested to see how that goes. Like I said, there have been close to 30 changes, uh, coaching changes already. We could get into many, many more of them. We will not, however. We will save those uh, for another day. For now, I want us to look back on the 2019 season for uh, maybe the final time, kind of the finalish time, probably. Um, Joe, what, what are some of your favorite memories from the season that, that, that you're going to take with you? 
So I don't want to steal too much of your thunder because I have a feeling you might mention this, but uh, it's not often in college baseball we get a player like Jake Mayhem. Um, so it's just a lot of fun to watch him because he's he's uh, not only a good player, um, you know, not only a talented guy, but clearly someone who cares about the whole of college baseball. Um, so it was just kind of outstanding, especially in this last year, uh, to watch him. So I, I'll, that, that's all I'll say there. But um, one other thing that I enjoyed this season was uh, one thing that I um, – really try to capture every year is, is early in the season. I try to, I try to find situations where I, I learn about a team early and maybe I'm able to get ahead of the curve on a team. And, um, you know, I think about, I saw Tennessee tech early in the 2018 season and was able to kind of see like, Holy moly, these, these guys are really good. (laughs) Like this is not just a team that's going to win the OVC. This is a team that has a chance to make some noise. Um, and I, you know, I didn't, I'm not trying to say that I was any sort of hipster with these teams cause we knew they were good, but you know, I saw UCLA and Georgia tech the second week of the season and came out of that. And I think I said it on the podcast, like, look, UCLA took two or three. And so there might be people who disappointed they didn't sweep that. Um, but let me tell you that I think UCLA is, is really, really good. And that turned out to be the case. I also think Georgia tech is really good. And that turned out to be the case. Now they, they lost their home regional and that's disappointing. And, um, you know, obviously there, there, there's kind of some people who would take a wait and see approach with Georgia Tech just because they, you know, they have come up short a lot of times in the postseason. But there's no doubting that team was really, really talented and had a really nice bounce back season in 2019. And, you know, I could see that early on. They, they did not look out of place against UCLA. They really played them pretty, pretty close. You know, and even the question marks you had with them, like the bullpen, um, I liked what I saw there. So it was kind of cool to see those two teams early on and, and be able to uh, be able to say, I've seen two of the probably two of the best teams I'm going to see this season um, in one place. That was uh, kind of a neat experience there. My final thing is you alluded to it at the top, Teddy, but, you know, working with Dave was uh, a pleasure, honestly. And I mean that sincerely. I tend to be kind of a, a guy who makes jokes to deal with, you know, to deal with serious situations. And, and I'm not very good at being earnest sometimes with things like this, but it, it was, you know, nothing but a pleasure and an honor to work with Dave. Uh, he was a lot of fun. Um, I think our podcast over the last like six weeks of the season, we really hit our stride. And, and uh, I think that was due in large part to Dave, just being Dave and getting comfortable in the role. And um, my, my favorite thing from Omaha is, you know, you guys may have seen Dave and I did some videos the first week or so of the, of the uh, or first four days of the, of the tournament out on the field, little recap videos. And it was amazing to me, Dave's what I like to call a coach's memory which is we would kind of go through just for two or three minutes, but before we hit record, we would talk about what we wanted to, to discuss. And his memory for game situations was uncanny. Like he would be able to, to go down to granular detail. Like I want to go back to that situation in the seventh inning where there was a guy on first. And so then they throw over on the second, you know, after the first pitch, they threw over. And then they threw two more pitches and he threw over again. And then they drew the error on the pickoff play. And then when he gets to second, the first pitch was a breaking ball. And like, I mean, just that level of detail was like just uncanny. You know, you know, I have enough trouble keeping up with like updating Twitter and keeping a scorebook during a game. And, you know, and Dave's able to to give me, you know, specific situations in a game down to the pitch. And that was, um, you know, I know coaches are known for that kind of thing, but I'd never seen it like kind of up close in real time like that. And I came away super impressed by that. And so certainly we'll miss Dave on the podcast, but looking forward to uh, seeing his next chapter in coaching. Yeah, one, one other thing I, I would say about Dave is that um, people would ask me a lot of the time uh, when we were when I was out talking to people, like, oh, what's it like working with Dave? And 
one of the, one of the things that I, I would say the most is that Dave really wanted to be good, and Dave Dave really worked hard to be good at, at this, and uh, it showed, and it, it definitely helped all of us. So we really appreciated everything, all, all the insights Dave was was able to lend us uh, uh, during this season. For me, like like you said, Joe, uh, watching Jake Mangum play has been an absolute pleasure over the last four years. I will certainly miss seeing him play um, you know, at Mississippi State. Anytime I see, see the Bulldogs, I, I will miss seeing Mangum uh, there at the top of the lineup and, and in center field. And well, I, guess, I guess it'll be strange anytime I hear your love by the outfield now, which has been his walk-up song, uh, it, that, that will in, forever be linked to, to Jake Mangum. And I know I've delivered effusive praise for him in the past, so I'm gonna gonna limit it to uh, to that. One other moment that one moment I guess that's really gonna stick with me is um, in the Atlanta Regional when Stephen Williams hit his home run, his walk off home run to to for Auburn to beat Georgia Tech and um, move into the the driver's seat in that regional. I mean that that was that was wild. Um, that game. Looked like it was over. Looked like Georgia Tech uh, was, was going to win it. Uh, Auburn going into the ninth inning really hadn't done anything against Connor Thomas. Really had very little going. And then all of a sudden, the game was over, just not in the way that anyone had anticipated it was going to be. And, you know, that was kind of the start of Auburn's wild run to Omaha. And I think that, you know, that one's definitely going to stand out as, as being one of the, the moments of the NCAA tournament for me as I look back on that. And, you know, I, I, I think that there, there was a lot of uh, really good baseball played. I really enjoyed being able to, to see as much of it as I did. I really enjoyed watching Adley Rutschman uh, again this season. I enjoyed being able to, to go and see the, the new duty noble field that, that all was awesome. But, you know, when, when you just look at, at some of the, the players that came through, I, I think those are kind of the, the big ones, um, you know that, that that truly stand out to me, but it was a it was a fun 2019 season ultimately, and um, we'll uh, we'll put it in the rear view now, and uh, we'll move forward to to 2020 uh, here at Baseball America. We'll have coverage of various summer things. I mentioned the collegiate national team at the top of the show. Uh, they are playing Cuba this week before they head off to Asia to play series against Taiwan and Japan, of course, the Cape Cod League, and the rest of the summer leagues are well underway now, um, and we will have uh, coverage of that. I will be going up to the Cape later this month, and then before you know it, uh, the students will be back, and we'll be into recruiting rankings and fall ball, and uh, then Joe and I will be trying to put together a, a preseason issue. Uh, the the offseason is long, but it once it gets going, it kind of gets going, so... We'll, uh, we'll be here for you here at Baseball America and at BaseballAmerica.com. I am not yet sure of what the podcast schedule will look like. There will be regular podcasts, college podcasts, in the offseason. We may kind of take July off, but certainly I would expect in August to get going. Uh, we'll definitely be going during, during the fall uh, when everyone's back at campus. Because I am not quite sure of how this is going to look, I would encourage you to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. That way you don't have to wonder 
did they record a podcast? You'll just know because it'll be on your phone. And so while you're subscribing, if you aren't subscribed yet, if you can leave us a rating or a review, we do appreciate those and they help other people uh, to find the show. So if you have a moment, we would appreciate that. Uh, you can check out all of the content at BaseballAmerica.com. The 8 for Omaha that has been referenced a few times is there. The final top 25, there will be more pieces um, you know, throughout, the, throughout July, like I mentioned, on the, the collegiate national team, on the Cape Cod uh, League, and, and, and what have you. So uh, make sure to, to check everything out over at BaseballAmerica.com. And you know, maybe you're into the, the minor league side as well. Uh, the, those guys are, are out there cranking on, on their stuff, and um, they, uh, they'll have plenty of coverage from the Futures game, which is upcoming uh, in Cleveland uh, before the Major League All-Star game. So I believe that that takes care of most of the podcast business. Uh, you can follow me at Ted Cahill on Twitter. And Joe, Joe has very important Twitter news. Joe, what's your new handle? Yeah, I, uh, I have rid myself of those pesky underscores. No longer am I beholden to the underscores. You can find me on Twitter now at Joe Healy BA. That's at Joe Healy BA. See, so I, when Joe told me he got a new Twitter handle, I told him I was going to mess it up on the podcast for like at least several episodes. So I've already avoided that once by just making Joe give the Twitter handle himself. That's that's a pro move, I feel like. That is, absolutely, yeah. But, but we're rolling now. I feel good about it. Like, I'm, I'm confident in my abilities now on uh, <laughs> doing that correctly. We will come back to you at some point. Like I said, it, it might not be in July. Uh, there's a lot going on in July in terms of travel, off-season, etc. So we will be back on the Baseball America College podcast at some point. And when we do, Joe and I will have plenty more to break down because – uh, even though it is the offseason, there is st- there are still things happening in college baseball, and we will be here for you throughout the offseason as we wait the uh, the long six, seven, however many months it is. I don't want to think about it until next February on opening day. So until uh, we-, we talk to you again, thank you for listening. Thanks to Joe for, for joining me, and we will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast uh, later in the offseason. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.